You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Are you the youngest lead producer on Broadway? Do you know? I don't know. And we try to figure this stuff out, but, you know, it's hard to figure out producers' ages. You don't want to ask. Um, I do know that our team overall has to be, like, the youngest or one of the youngest. Has that been a challenge? Have you felt that at all? I think the fact that our show I has... I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey everybody, it's Ken Davenport. We are going to get to Jennifer Tepper, the lead producer of Be More Chill, the most talked about show on Broadway these days. It's breaking house records over at the Lyceum Theater. Uh, But before we do, I wanted to tell you about something I miss desperately. I used to run these rehearsal studios in Midtown, rent them out to Broadway shows and off-Broadway shows, and they were right here in Midtown, right here. Now they're gone disappeared. The building has been locked up. And what people don't know is there are actually very few rehearsal studios in Midtown until now. There's a brand new rehearsal studio right here, 321 West 44th Street. Welcome Sunlight Studios, the newest rehearsal studios on the block, available for rehearsal for your Broadway show, your off-Broadway show, your reading, whatever you'd like. To book a studio at these new spaces, visit sunlightstudios.com, sunlightstudios.com, right in the heart of the theater district. And so few rehearsal studios are. It is so dang convenient. We have already started to book stuff there ourselves. They've also got smaller studios if you just want a voice lesson or a class. Use code Davenport to receive a 5% discount on bookings until April 11th only. Use code Davenport to get 5% off at Sunlight Studios, the brand new rehearsal spaces. So visit sunlightstudios.com and book your space today. Now on with the podcast. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox.
Hello, everybody. It's Kent Davenport. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. I'm very excited for today. As I told her when I asked her to be on the podcast, it gave me such joy to send this invite to her because she once worked for me. I think you once interned for me as well. I came up the ranks in your office. came up the ranks, (laughs) and now she's a lead producer of one of the most talked about shows on Broadway. Uh, And also, I believe, could be one of the youngest, if not the youngest, lead producers on Broadway. Uh, Please welcome the producer of Be More Chill, Ms. Jennifer Tepper. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi. I'm filled with joy, too. (laughs) So the show just opened a couple days ago. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. You know, we're really, really proud of it. You should be. I mean, the journey for this and the journey for you with the piece and with Joe, I mean, this has gone on for a very, very long time. Yes. When did you first meet Joe Iconis? I was obsessed with his work when I was an NYU student in 2008. I found like a dusty demo with his songs in a closet at the York Theater where I was interning. Uh, and I said, I have to do anything to work with this guy, to meet him, to start collaborating with him. Uh, I worked with a producer on Title of Show where I was the assistant director who was producing a five performance run of one of Joe's concerts and said, like, let me get coffee, let me do anything. So that's why I first started working with him on Things to Ruin, which had a five performance run at second stage. And I never looked back. And we've been working together on every project every show for the last decade, um, whether it's been me, you know, producing it or just special thanks or getting coffee, like everything in between. So I often ask people like what draws them to shows. So when you were intern at York, what was it about the material that you were like, oh my gosh, this artist is special? I One of the first songs of his that I heard was this song called Helen, where the chorus is Helen's in Skin Flicks now, and it's about discovering that this girl you went to high school with is in Skin Flicks. And I thought, this guy is writing musical theater that nobody else is writing that is both contemporary, but also has this vibe of like old school musical theater and perfect rhyme and craft to it. Um, and it just hit all of my sensibilities about how it just felt like he was writing stuff no one else was writing. And from the first time I heard his musicals as well, I was like, oh, these stories are about community and just the way that he was writing really grabbed me, um, as well as, you know, assembling a community of artists who created the shows together. Mm-hmm. You've done a lot of things. I mean, already you've talked about working at a theater and assistant <laughs> directing. Did you always want to be a producer? What's funny is, so I went to NYU um, and I majored in dramatic writing because I loved writing and I loved theater. And I really thought I want to make musicals happen, but I don't know if that means commercial producing. Um, but as soon as I graduated, I thought I want to work in a producer's office. And the first time I ever got to do that was working for you. Um, it took me like two years after graduation to get what I wanted, which was like working for a producer to kind of figure out to make musicals happen. Like, do I want to try to work at a not-for-profit? Do I want to try to, you know, be a commercial producer? I thought, you know, there might be different paths to this. Like, the people I worshipped growing up included, like, Ira Weitzman and Ted Chapin and people who were not necessarily commercial producers, but who had roles in it. So I kind of trusted my path would lead to the right place. (laughs) And now what do you think? (laughs) I... I love being a commercial producer. I love the fact that we've gotten to do this. Um, it's funny though. I think that, you know, people are like, why didn't you produce one of Joe's shows earlier? And I think that I, was me. Yeah, you I had, you like, asked me that for years. I think you asked oh. me to produce one of his shows and I was like, Jen, I'm not the person to do this. You're <laughs> the person me. to do this. You know what's so funny though? I, because I'm such a theater historian and I look at this from that perspective as well, it's like when, 
Be More Chill closed at Two River and we were all devastated and we were like, more people deserve to see this musical. It, at that point, I, you know, I could have been like, hey, maybe I'll try to rent this theater. I'll try to do this thing. And I don't think it would have been the right choice for the show. And I've definitely over the years just had this thing in development or that thing. And I'm, if that gets a good review or if that gets a moment to come to this theater, like I'm in, like I'll raise the money, I'll do it. And it felt like we were gathering skills and like every job I've ever had, like working for you um, and working for other producers has prepared me as well as working with Joe and working on all those projects has prepared me. And now it all comes together and we had this moment where it was the right moment for it to happen. Okay, so let's go back a little bit before you went to NYU. And so where did you, you have to be, I mean, I love me some musical theater, <laughs> but I don't know anyone that's as passionate about musical theater and Broadway uh, like you are. Where did it begin? I was so obsessed with it growing up in Boca Raton, Florida. And part of it that I think put on my theater historian brain early was that I didn't have the access to New York. Like I didn't live in New Jersey or Long Island or get to see Broadway shows. So I had to study them from afar. And that made me excited to like teach myself. So I would, you know, pour over like liner notes and read Playbill magazine, even though I couldn't actually go to the shows and study them. Um, and that I think put it in my head early that I was interested in that kind of research. Um, but also, you know, I came to New York three times before I ever moved here for NYU. So um, from the first time I came here, I was like, oh my God, I'm at the Eugene O'Neill Theater. Like, this is where Smokey Joe's Cafe played. Like, all the, the Smokey Joe's Cafe was at the Virginia. I, I have that up. I'm thinking of five guys named Mo. Um, I would have made him delete that later. But um, no, I knew, I knew from the first time I set foot in each Broadway theater, like what else had played in that house. So I, I was so obsessed with it on such a level early that has kind of carried through with my whole career. What was the first show you saw here? Full Monty. Yeah. Full Monty. Yeah. Which is, so I'm producing Joe's next show starring Annie Golden and she was in the first Broadway musical I ever saw, which I think about all the time. <laughs> uh, so right out of school, you the first gig you had was at the York? Um, that was my first internship. Uh, the three internships I had in college that were really like influential were that I interned for R&H um, and I interned for the gang of title of show and ended up working on the show when it went to Broadway. And how I think a lot of young people look to try to get in the door. And one of the things I remember about you is your and still to this day, your ability to just get in any door. I mean, the amount of we'll talk about untold stories in a bit, but you interviewed everybody <laughs> and their brother and sister for that, <laughs> and some of the biggest powerhouses on Broadway. Uh, and I just remember this about you as well. What do you think got you so many connections so early? Getting the title of show gig, getting an internship, getting all these jobs. It's so funny. Like, you can see it either way because I really did. And I tell everyone who ever interns for me this. Like, I spent the two years after I graduated applying for so many things that I didn't get. And I actually, I applied for a job in your office and I was dying to work there. And, you know, who knows? Like, there's a 100 people who apply for everything. But the way that I got a job with you was that when I was working on Joe's show, Blood Song of Love at Ars Nova, do you remember this? You saw that I was doing all this creative audience outreach and marketing. And that's how we first connected and I invited you and you were like oh let's talk about you doing that on my show so it was really me doing my own thing that ended up getting me hired places um, and it was similar with title of show I invited the title of show gang to see a big thing I put together at NYU and was like we're all obsessed with you would you come chat with us afterwards we're a bunch of students but I was doing something I had something to invite them to um, and I also think you know the way I got my job as creative director at Feinstein 54 below was similar to how I got my job with you those producers saw that I was um, producing something of Joe's at the venue. And when they needed a new programming director, they were like, let's get that woman. So we saw her do that already. Uh, so it's just making making your stuff. Hmm. 
That's why you left me to go work there. <laughs> uh, and what was the first thing you actually produced? You talk about this. So talk about that because I know a lot of producers out there, young producers or emerging producers want to do stuff and they're like, oh, I can't do a $15 million musical. And many of them, frankly, stop right there and say, well, I guess I'll never be a producer. F this because I don't have $15 million. Mm-hmm. You didn't do that. What did you do instead? What's funny is, you know, so my job on a day-to-day basis on Be More Chill is so many of the things that I've been doing for 12 years, even when we're doing a show for 30 people in a basement, like, you know, producing um, involves so many of the same skills, no matter what level you're doing at, it's only at different levels that involves the high high level of money raising. So, so many of the jobs, the tasks are the same. Um, honestly, we've been amassing this army of people that are interested in Joe's work for so long. So when I thought, okay, I'm going to raise a half of this money for this off-Broadway production. A, it was off-Broadway. So part of it is like the lower thresholds are slightly less intimidating. Um, and in fact, a lot of the co-producers and people I brought on board are first-time and young producers who thought, okay, off-Broadway has, you know, that entry level that's lower as well as first-time investors. Um, and part of it was I had all these people to call who I knew, um, you know, this person loves coming to Joe's concerts and sometimes invests in Broadway shows. This person's always wanted to invest in Joe when the time is right. So, so many of my investors and producers were people I had cultivated relationships with for years. And that that made it slightly less intimidating in that way. But I also think, you know, to just just start somewhere, like you don't have to produce a $15 million Broadway show, like you can produce an off off Broadway show. And you know, you just start somewhere. Raising the money at the Broadway level, though, it did it felt like I took a few steps at a time. And I'm glad I did. I'm glad I didn't jump in the deep end, you know, from the beginning. What was it like to make the decision to even jump on and produce the off Broadway show? Did you battle with that? Was it an easy decision? It was super easy. I mean, what happened really was the show, obviously, you know, this has been well documented, but when it closed and, you know, we were all disappointed nothing was happening with it. After the cast album started taking off like crazy, I would, you know, I've been an advocate for Joe, whether I'm officially involved in a show or not. So for those three years in between, I was going, hey, like, let's do this concert at 54 Below and invite producers. And, you know, we got the show licensed because we did it in concert at 54 Below. And hey, maybe we'll talk to these people about, you know, a regional production. And it was just pushing those things. And then finally, after nobody being interested for years, there were like a bunch of producers who were all interested once they really understood the streaming numbers, which is we're up to 300 million streams now. No one knew exactly what that would mean. And then the Joes, Joe Iconis and Joe Trace, picked the producer they felt like they wanted to do it and said, you should do this with Jen Tepper. We had already met Jerry Gehring and I. So um, we met at Sardi's about a year ago. It's only been like a year and thought, okay, like, let's do this together, which was a great decision. (laughs) And you, obviously the show did unbelievably well off Broadway. Tell me about the decision to move it to Broadway. Was it, did you open off Broadway going like, Ooh, if this goes really well, we'll move it to Broadway. Yeah, you know, what was interesting was in talking to every, you know, investor and also the actors and making sure everyone had the right expectations, we always said, we are so excited to finally bring this to New York. This might be the best summer ever, and this is absolutely it, and we'll cultivate, we'll get this fan base in who loves it, and, you know, that'll be fine. Or maybe we'll transfer to Off-Broadway, who knows? Maybe we'll transfer to Broadway, maybe this will be a tour. Like, we kept every option open, Um, but from the moment we sold out our Off-Broadway run before opening night, and then you know, put on an extension, which sold out in a few hours. I, I think from the moment, like we started rehearsals for Off-Broadway, I was like, we're going to Broadway. We're doing this. We're going to Broadway. <laughs> I definitely remember opening night Off-Broadway. I was going, we're going to Broadway. We're going to Broadway. 
And what I love about this story is that, you know, if you talk to any theater owner right now or last year, whenever they will tell you, there are no theaters available. You got nothing. There's none out there. Forget <laughs> it. Like literally no way. And then all of a sudden one opens for you and you of all people know how challenging it is to get these theaters. What was that like when you got that call? Oh my God. Well, first of all, I'm wearing a necklace that has a key on it because when I, when we met with each of the Broadway theater owners, I was wearing it for good luck. Like, give us a key to your theater. Um, and it was really cool. I've interviewed all of them for my book. So to walk in as a producer was really cool and to talk about the theaters. They do. They all say that. And it's fascinating. And we all love thinking about which show's going to go where. The moment that we got the call that we got the Lyceum, was so special. I I mean, title of show was at the Lyceum. So my first job I ever had was there. And that's what inspired me to write my books was spending time at the Lyceum. And we never thought, I mean, every day I would talk to, you know, one of our actors or writers and be like, maybe the cord, maybe the long acre. And we didn't think it was the Lyceum because we assumed something else was, was in there after a play that goes wrong. And it was us, it turns out. Crazy. How helpful do you think it was to have interviewed the theater owners before walking in there and asking them for a theater. It's interesting. You know, I have all these relationships with people in our industry from different things. It's, you know, I don't think I ever would have been able to interview Patti LuPone for Untold Stories if I didn't book her at 54 Below. So there's all of this synergy in all of my, like, professional relationships. All the theater owners, I think, you know, seeing someone who has come up through the ranks like that, I think everyone was really wonderful about it. Yeah, listen, I can speak for that experience. They... There is something about it when they've seen you in a box office or backstage at a theater. They just know you're serious about this industry and are going to stick to it for a okay. while. So let me ask you this. Did you... I, I don't have the data. Maybe you do. Are you the youngest lead producer on Broadway? Do you know? I don't know. And we try to figure this stuff out, but, you know, it's hard to figure out producers' ages. You don't want to ask. Um, I do know that our team overall has to be, like, the youngest or one of the youngest. Has that been a challenge? Have you felt that at all? Both... From outside sources and also yourself, just walking into the room knowing like, ooh, I'm talking to someone who's 80 years old and I have to <laughs> negotiate a really good deal here. There's something that's almost powerful about it, given what our show is. I think the fact that our show has been so powered by young people and social media and a lot of the older people I'm in rooms with look to me to be to know what that means and to be able to speak to how we continue that and, you know market our show and like talk to the fans about our show so it's it's been an asset in that way um it's also i think part of it is that people know i have such respect for history for the decades past so no one thinks that i'm like a young upstart who doesn't know about like the established broadway rule it hasn't been a huge challenge yet we'll see <laughs> what about being a female you know, that's been an interesting component of it because I actually think there's so many like lead female producers with visibility on Broadway right now and it's going in such a positive direction that I just feel like part of that um yeah, it's it's also kind of been an asset in that way. No challenges along the way you've never felt Oof, this is a little bit harder than it should be. There's definitely, you know, what's weird is that I don't feel it in moments where I'm in the room with important people. I actually only feel it in moments um, where it's like a lower level conversation or someone who, you know, I would never walk into the theater owner's office and feel different because I was younger a woman. And it's there was a conversation that a bunch of the Tony nominated best actresses had a couple seasons ago where they were like, now, you know, we all love each other. Everyone feels really supportive. When we were at those auditions in the early days, that's when like everyone was awful to each other because we were... You 
you know, being competitive women with each other. Um, we did have, you know, during auditions, I was um, like really actively involved in casting the show with our team. And our musical director is a woman and one of our two casting directors is a woman. And there were a few times where someone would come into the room and say hi to all the men in the room and not like say hello to us, um, which was very, that was very strange. And I was like, Hmm. Um, so certainly there's definitely moments where you're like, okay, you know, and there's also, I think part of it is I'm like, you know, if I'm going to cry, I'm going to cry. That's I'm seen as like a female thing. Like I can get pretty like happy crying, sad crying. And you know, I'm surrounded by enough people who don't care. I think our show is full of people who are like, you know, if you're sitting on the floor in your socks because we're doing a Broadway show together and you're 30 years old, like, that's great. There's a little bit of, like, we're at summer camp and that's okay that I think makes it okay to be yourself in whatever way that means. Talk a little bit about that and how you market both yourself and your shows through social media because it seems there is a real sense of authenticity and not caring about being in socks or wherever. Is that a strategy? Why do you think it's successful? I, that's also, I mean, I think that goes into what you said too, um, that sometimes older people actually don't understand that of the, the authenticity of it. I think it's important to not just be like, here's a press release about, you know, what's going on with our show. I think it's important to be like, oh my God, I'm freaking out because Sondheim's here today. Or, you know, hey, I just fell in a mud puddle. Um, you know, it's all part of it. Um, and I find that, you know, the job of being a producer is being responsible with like running the show, with people's money, with the decisions being made. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're walking around and a pinstripe suit shaking hands all the time like you're a human and I think people like that and I think part of the magic of our show is that we've been doing this in like barns and basements together for so long and there's this like family and authenticity that um you know one of the confusing things about Broadway is like well Roland is used to hanging up the lights and you know our band members are used to vacuuming and it's it's all um it's all a real thing so I think retaining some of that while also understanding that we're expanding and certain jobs have to be delegated is part of the magic and showing people that is part of it too there's so many different skills that it takes to be a producer on Broadway marketing raising money relationships with artists etc, etc. What do you think uh, is your best skill? (laughs) I think the knowledge, the like, has always been my like super skill of being able to be like, hey, what if we tried this in the marketing campaign? Oh, I know that in 1972, a really similar thing happened. And this is a weird way it mirrors today, even though we have social media now. Um, And being able to pull on that knowledge to go, oh, and also, you know, when we did the show of Joe's, we tried this and, you know, on a smaller level knowing. So having the institutional knowledge of both theater history and of everything Joe has ever done for the past 10 years and combining those has been kind of my super skill. So speaking of history, what made you want to write the books, Untold Stories of Broadway? It was truly um, hanging out at the Lyceum with the title of Shogang and running around as assistant director. I was so fascinated by the fact that we were in this building from 1903 where all of these shows had played before us. And Jeff Bowen, who's the composer lyricist of that, and I, we would like look at a specific Lyceum show and, you know, listen to the recording before the show. We would kind of like bring it to life. And, um, you know, that would make the more experience there for us more special. And that made me go, Oh my God, what if there was a book that was kind of like the, um, at this theater, which I always love, but was personal to people where you were going, okay, like I'm in this Lyceum dressing room. Who was here before me? What happened 10 years ago? What happened 20 years ago? 
So that's really, you know, what inspired it. And also just wanting to go, I want to interview actors and producers and directors, but also, you know, stagehands and musicians and company managers. And it really, I mean, when I think about interviewing sound designers, and that truly has been informative as a producer in figuring out, you know, talking to sound designers, um, just giving kids that are reading these books and young people who don't know perspective on all the jobs in theater was a big goal of mine. Do you remember your favorite interview or your favorite quote from all those books? Oh, it was Hal. It's all, I mean, it's like, I'm, you know, but, um, inter- the fact that, you know, as you said, like so many people said yes, who didn't know me from Adam. And that was really an honor. But the fact that I got to go into Hal Prince's office years ago and ask him just tons of questions. And he told me a story that I have not read in any other Hal Prince literature, which made me really happy, which was of him being an assistant stage manager and um, at the Broadhurst many, many years ago. And you'll have to read the books for that story. But there, there were so many people who just said like, the magic is still there. And we all know like how hard this business can be, but really sitting down with people and hearing about some of the hard parts and also really knowing that everyone's still doing it because they love it because you would have to was a big lesson. How many volumes are there? There are three. Hopefully there'll be six because I have to get to all the theaters, but it's on pause at the moment. (laughs) Any other book ideas in your future? Yeah, you know, I definitely, I love the idea of writing a book about, like, Be More Chill, about all what we're doing right now at at some point, and I think hopefully that'll happen. I keep saying Be More Chill is one of the most exciting case studies that Broadway has seen in decades, so hopefully you will write that book, because I would like to read it. Yeah. Uh, so as the, the show just opened, obviously you've had this huge run-up of excitement, now, are you going to the theater every night? I'm sure you are. Uh, what else are you doing? What I mean, this is the most exciting part of any Broadway show is the run-up. Now it's open. And often the industry moves on to whatever's next as you've got to stick it out. What are you doing now? There are so many things that I have wanted to do, whether it's like creative little marketing things or, hey, we've always wanted to do this once we were on Broadway to, you know, that we are saving. So there really are like a lot of things in the can that we're going to pull out later. But it is the Hal Prince lesson of like wake up the next morning and do the next show, which is, you know, I'm producing Joe's next show, Broadway Bounty Hunter, and we are opening off Broadway this summer at the Greenwich House downtown, like Ars Nova took over Barrow Street. Uh, so really the next thing we're doing is, you know, let's do all the shows now. Now we get to do all the shows. Uh, but as far as Be More Chill goes, yeah, I am there. And it's part of the like magic also is like this weird synergy. Like I almost feel like I'm in the band and I'm one of the understudies. It really does feel like every day, like we're all talking to each other. And if I wasn't popping in the band room to check in with the band, they would be surprised. There's definitely going to be that for, for quite some time. So obviously you have this team market like crazy with Be More Chill, breaking house records like unbelievably well, um, doing unbelievably well. What what's your strategy to make sure that those parents are having a great time and telling all their friends as well as the kids? It's a great question. You know, what's so funny is that like with all of the new musical theater writers for years, Joe was always the one that I think had like a slightly older fan base. You know, we would do these concerts and it would be, you know, six year old women from Long Island who love his cabaret work. So the fact that the way we got to Broadway was powered by the fuel of young people is not necessarily the most expected, although he does write so well for young people. Um, on a day to day basis, we are doing, you know, tons of like advertising and marketing strategy to make sure that everyone knows it's for them. (coughs) I was actually really glad that a number of the reviews were like, this is for people of all ages. 
Um, but I think part of it is like a slight misconception that comes with how our show happened. I don't think it's any more just for kids than School of Rock or Anastasia or any of these family shows. And as I sit in the audience and watch all of these people laugh at, you know, jokes about Eminem and like references to music from the 80s, I'm like, this really is for people of all ages. And both word of mouth and traditional advertising, we're hoping will keep that engine going. It's also, you know, we're proud of the fact that the fan base was so young, but it's not, you know, like ton of 13 year olds. The super fans that got us here and streamed it really are a wider variety of ages than people think. And we're seeing that at the theater and it's just growing older and older, which is good. <laughs> will you produce anything that Joe has not? <laughs> I definitely will. And I don't think that that is going to happen like in the immediate future, but it, it definitely will happen. Um, I think a lot about like the great writer producer partnerships of like, there's something um, that's so special about doing this together in this moment. And I think at some point, you know, there'll definitely be other projects that I produce as well. Your dream job in 20 years, what would you <laughs> You know, one of my dreams that I've always said is um, to run encores. That's something that like I always have wanted to do. And I've been lucky enough to be a little bit involved in Encore's Off Center over the years. Uh, I, you know, worship what they do over there. And I love that it's now like, it, there's so much new blood all the time. It's treasuring like old underappreciated musicals. Um, so that's definitely one of my dreams. I'm having lunch with Jack Bertel for like <laughs> 30 minutes. I don't want to steal his job. I love Jack Bertel. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. I'm going to ask you my last question, which is my genie question. If the genie from Aladdin came to visit you and granted you one wish, you're such a positive person and, and so passionate about Broadway. And obviously, you love it so much. I will actually never forget um, the moment, first time you were in my office, I think, you were writing for BroadwaySpace.com or interviewing, yeah. interviewing to write for that social networking site. And you just had this huge smile on your face. Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking, that is a person that wants to work on Broadway. You obviously love it so much. What's the one thing that you hate about it that you would ask this genie to wish away in an instant? I do hate that we have, this is, I hope I'm not taking this as a trick question, but I do hate that we have these 41 theaters. I think that we absolutely, there is more product that has room and could find an audience. And I think the fact that, um, you know, 41 is a little bit of a stranglehold and there are other spaces. Like my dream of dreams is that there are three more theaters in the next 10 years. And the fact that we've gotten the Hudson back makes me feel hopeful about that. But I do think, you know, now that we all see there are shows that have the money to come in and can't get a space, um, that scares me for like the future of musical theater, especially when, um, you know, it's harder to break in and like get through that gate for the first time. My hope is that we would have some more theaters. What do you think about Fiddler doing so well over at an off-Broadway theater right now? God, I love that. I do think, you know, having produced an off-Broadway commercial run, like that rolled into a Broadway run, which is a model that is not done all the time. Like there are other models that can work. And I think I'm so excited that that's happening with Fiddler. Well, we're excited with what's happened to you. And with Be More <laughs> Chill, thank you so much for being here. Best of luck. And thanks to all of you for listening. Go read Untold Stories of Broadway, Volumes 1 through 3, and then email Jen and tell her to finish 4, 5, and 6. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next time.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.